This is episode 2C of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, June 19, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Thaler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And we have the final installment in the FOSDEM 2012 Policy and Legal Track Talks. Excellent. I'm glad we broke it up a little bit so that we had some other um, regular episodes in between. Well, we're waiting for our license on this one was the main issue. And we now have a license. Oh, no, wait. We have one more talk. Oh, do we? I forgot. We do have a recording of Mike Linksfair's talk. Ah. Which we can use at a later date. So this is, in fact, okay. not. At another talk where the speaker was going to see if they could edit the talk. So there were, there's a... There, there could be two, but I think there's only one. No, there's only one, I think. There's two more. One is going to be in this episode, and one's going to be in the next episode. This episode, we have the first talk of the day. Yep. Uh, I would recommend in this one taking a look at the slides uh, if you're not walking or driving or doing anything right. else so at this the same is, time. This was the opening talk by <laughs> Philippe Laurent um, regarding... Various different, I guess, just discussing different case law that appeared in European courts for open source and free software. Yeah, I think it's a good like overview and summary of the um, of the state of play in the EU. The state of play. State of play. The, he wasn't talking about any sort of like playing. I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, it's a common expression. I was about You're, to kill the web browser. Yeah, I was going to say. I was trying to kill the web browser because the it was taking up too much CPU time because uh, Zulrunner always takes up all the CPU time and then the recording doesn't have enough CPU time. And then I realized if I killed the web browser, I'd also kill the thing we're looking at to talk about what talk we have. And that wouldn't work. I'm not looking at that. Well, I was looking at that. Because, I have my slides up. Oh, okay. Well, so uh, so I think probably you'll want to listen to this talk with the slides. I think that's basically correct. Yeah, because there's a lot of information on the slides about the cases. Yeah, and actually, um, I, I find the slides to be useful on their own as well. So uh, I guess we'll listen now to Philippe's talk, and then we'll discuss it later. And then, some future episode, we'll have Mike Linksfire's talk. Perfect. Enjoy. Well, of course, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers and the, the committee to invite me to make a presentation, a quick presentation on the case law, the European case law, uh, involving uh, free open source, but also open content uh, licenses. And as I said to Tom, it's a, very, it's, it's a pleasure for me to be the, the, the first speaker to the first legal dev room uh, in my hometown, uh, Brussels. So thank you very much for this great opportunity. Um, so we're going to start directly. First of all, I would like to explain why uh, I put in my title uh, open source and free software, but also open content. It's because uh, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to broaden the scope because here in, in, in Europe and more particularly in Belgium, we reached some great results uh, with uh, the implementation and the enforcement of open content licenses and more 
particularly Creative Commons licenses. And I think that with that kind of result that we reached here in Belgium, it could be very interesting to make some links in order to uh, strengthen the, the, the implementation and the enforcement of uh, software licenses such as GPL, for instance. Uh, of course, I will not uh, be rude and explain what's the difference between uh, the four freedoms of FSF, the, uh, the FSF definition, and the 10 criteria of the OSI. I will not explain either what Creative Commons licenses. I, I suppose that everybody knows what it is exactly, so I will not spend much time on that slide. So, um, analyzing the European case, though, but ba basically it could be done in different ways. And uh, doing it in 20 minutes, it's very challenging. <laughs> so I had to make choices and try to create a threat uh, between the, the cases in order to, well, just uh, explain my point of view on how analyze it, I analyze it. So uh, basically, there are several big questions and important questions. The first question was, of course, well, uh, is, are the licenses valid? Are they acknowledged by uh, courts and tribunals? Um, well, are they valid or acknowledged as a whole? Or, and we can start going, going into details and analyze each and every clause of the license and uh, analyze what the courts and tribunals think about specific clauses. Well, in 20 minutes, it's, it's quite impossible to do that. Um, another way to go through the, the case law, and that's the, the kind of thing that I will try to do, is basically asking oneself, what can I ask? to a judge? What can I request? When there is an infringement, which, which are the, the remedies that I could ask a judge to grant me? And basically, it's possible, I think, to divide the remedies in three categories. The first one is to make the infringement stop. Saying to the infringer, well, you didn't respect the license, now you have to stop. A stop order. In other, in other words, it's a cease and desist. Uh, action and uh, the main aim is to make the infringer stop and uh, usually at least in, 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 in civil law uh, jurisdictions there are specific procedure to reach that aim uh, another aim could be an indemnification meaning there th there has been a copyright infringement <coughs> so I've suffered a damage and this damage should be indemnified in some way uh, so that would be a second step first you stop then you indemnify me and uh, here I have to make it clear when I say pay I, I do not include in that category the fact of asking an infringer to pay back the lawyer's fees or the procedu procedural costs it goes more than that, it's really pay an amount of money because you infringed my copyright. And the last category that we could also um, identify is whether it's possible to go to a court and say, well, this infringer accepted my license, a GPL for instance, he therefore <coughs> accepted the copyleft clause, he created a derivative work, and then I asked the judge, please make him release his derivative work under the GPL. That's the third category. I've put it on my slide because I think it's, it's interesting just to evoke 
this ID. But you will see that uh, the, you will never see the, the red box again on any of my, on my other slides because in the case law right now in Europe, uh, we didn't reach so far and we never tried to go that far, forcing somebody to release a derivative work under a GPL, for instance. So my analysis, we reach the conclusion that a stop order is quite easily uh, obtained and maybe a Belgian particularity is that we already reached a second level, namely pay, making somebody pay just because he breached an open content license. Okay, so this is my <coughs> case list. I, I try to be as exhaustive as possible. So, of course, it's really challenging to present all these cases. Uh, I forced myself to create one slide per case, which, quite, what, which was quite complicated, and it, had, it has had a, a direct influence on the, 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 the font size. But such a man it is, it's going to be readable, and I think that we're going to publish these uh, slides later on on, on, on the website. Uh, I'm going to make a selection in my uh, presentation, because I've got already 10 minutes left. So uh, I'm going to be very quick and try to focus only on, on my threat, namely stop order, making people pay, and maybe forcing to comply. But I said already that uh, the case law didn't reach that point. OK, so first part, free and open source software. Second part, open content licenses. And in my first part, I, it can also be divided in two types of cases. The German cases, which uh, all involve Mr. Howard, Howard Welt, uh, <laughs> who is present here, so I'm, uh, I'm not going to go into details because he knows the details <coughs> much better than I, I know them. And uh, another thing is that all the case is in German. I do not read German, uh, so I just based my presentation on the, the, the <coughs> English the, the translations. Uh, they, yeah. That are all GPL cases. They are all GPL cases, yes. And uh, a second subpart, the French case law. And what is very interesting to see is that Germany is really about compliance, except the last one. Uh, so basically, infringer who, who does not respect the license and they are sued by the copyright owners. And in France, it's, it's, also, it's always about very, very uh, messy contractual situations. So it's also involving a lot of people doing weird stuff and uh, infringing copyrights indirectly or whatever, but it's, it's th there are cases m much more about uh, contracts than really uh, infringing a license or um, enforcing a license. Okay, so, <laughs> of course, the first German case, Netfilter versus Sitecom, uh, was a groundbreaking uh, decision, very important one. Uh, actually, retrospectively, it was quite a clear-cut case of infringement. So we had somebody, well, Mr. Weld, who uh, participated in the creation of a, of a work, uh, Netfilter, which, which was part of uh, the Linux kernel. So basically, he was a, per a person who could actually enforce the GPL on the Linux kernel. And we have a wireless hardware producer, Sycom, 
uh, who used uh, the work of, of, Mrs. of Mr. Welt and uh, uh, installed Linux as a firmware on the hardware. And the firmware was downloadable and it contained, well, Mr. Welt's work, NetFilter IP tables. And the problem was that the GPL was not respected at all. Uh, no reference to the fact that the, the firmware contained a GPL code, GPL code. Uh, no reference to the license, uh, no source code available, nothing. So uh, the authors, copyright owners, uh, brought the case before court and asked for a preliminary injunction. And uh, the German court reacted quite well um, by accepting and uh, confirming the validity of the license. And an, an interesting thing is that it directly said, well, the GPL is like general business conditions. So it makes directly a link between GPL and contracts, for things. So I'm insisting on that because I know there are, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, lawyers coming from a, a common law country, <coughs> and there is this big discussion about uh, whether the GPL is a contract or not. First uh, reaction of the German court, well, it's like general business conditions. It's like a contract. Then the court uh, started assessing the, the different clauses that were uh, um, uh, used in that case and uh, on which the, the authors relied upon in order to ask stop order. So I'm, I'm not going to go into details on that part, but I will just say that the German court had quite some difficulties to uh, apply uh, GPL 2, Article 4, Sentences 2 and 3. Uh, but anyway, it reached, it made a shortcut and, and, and it said, well, I don't know if, it, if it's valid or not, but anyways, Article 4, Sentence 1 is valid. Anyway, the famous Article 2B is valid. So uh, if the defendant tries to say, well, uh, one clause is valid or, uh, and the other is not, maybe the whole license is, is invalid. And if the, uh, the whole license is not valid, then in any cases, you made a copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, that's quite clear. If you made a copyright infringement, I, as a, a judge, can order you to stop doing what you've done. So it granted the, uh, the claim and it uh, pronounced uh, a, preliminary, a preliminary injunction. And in, in that case, actually, it was a, a judge confirming of a preliminary injunction that was pronounced by uh, another court. So uh, it's a little bit of a mix of, of two proce procedures here. But uh, anyway, I, I think the, the conclusion is that GPL violation is a copyright infringement and uh, Sitecom was enjoined under penalty from distributing, copying, making available without complying with the license. And that's another thing that is quite important, I think, in, in that case. The courts specially specified you have to stop and you have to pay if you make a, an infringement once again. If you distribute copy, copy or make available without complying with the license. So it made a link between the two. You have to, to stop if you do not respect the license. And until, until that point, you, you cannot use the software anymore. <laughs> 
But implicitly, it also says, well, once you respect the license, you can go back again. At least that's how I, I analyze it from a Belgian lawyer point of view, analyzing a German case. So <laughs> um, uh, I put some reservations about that, but that's also an interesting point where uh, right now we are talking about re reinstatement uh, once a license has been breached. Uh, what are the powers of, of a licensor? And uh, I think that's the reason why the, the conclusion of the court in that case could be interesting as well, uh, specifically in Europe. Okay, another case um, where in German as well, uh, in Germany, and uh, I will not spend time on it because it's quite, it's quite similar and there is no particularities there, so uh, we can go directly to another case. Uh, always the same person, so basically Mr. Welte, another uh, hardware producer. Uh, well, the canvas is, is more or less the same, so the, the hardware producer used uh, um, a part of Linux in his firmware and did not comply with the GPL. The particularity of the case is that actually the, the owners, the licensors and the hardware producers reached a settlement and the hardware producer said, well, okay, I will comply with the GPL, but I refuse to pay you anything. I refuse to reimburse the, the costs uh, of, the, the, of anything that you have s done in order to reach um, a comp compliance with the, with the GPL. So basically, uh, the author spent some money, they, they hired a lawyer just to make understand the producer, the hardware producer, that he has to comply. And so they dis there, there, some disbursement has been made and the infringer didn't want to pay anything back to the, the, the authors. So uh, the licensors, the authors decided to go to court in order to get back this money that, that has been spent on uh, uh, in order to uh, to enforce the GPL, and the court confirmed that not complying with the GPL was a violation of copyrights. Uh, it confirmed that nothing was invalid in in the GPL, but it's quite vague. And uh, well, there is there was also an antitrust antitrust uh, plea from the defendant and. Uh, it was rejected as well. So basically, the court condemned D-Link, the hardware producer, to reimburse the lawyer's fee and the enforcement costs, and a little bit more to disclose data about the suppliers and the customers of the hardware, the hardware producer. And that's very interesting because that's a step further. And when I say, when I say that it's a step further, usually you can ask that to a judge, and you ask that to a judge in order to prepare a second step, which means now that I, I know how many units you've, you've, you, you've sold, I can calculate my damages my, and, the, and the indemnities that you have to pay me because you infringed my copyright. So I think it's very important to see that it's one step further and in, maybe in preparation of a, a claim for indemnities. Okay, another case that I'm not I will not talk about. And uh, the last German case, well, it's not about compli compliance, it's about once again uh, a hardware producer having some firmware. And the problem was that this hardware producer didn't want the users 
or another company to create another firmware and to install it on its machine. So it's a bit like the Tyvo case in the US, but it's not a, not a Tyvo case because in, in this case, the hardware producer was not trying to uh, stop and uh, forbid anybody to reinstall firmware uh, with technical measures, that was a Tyvo case, but here it, it was on basis of flow. They were just saying, well, basically it's my work, well, maybe there is some GPL code there, but anyway, the result is my work, and then on basis of copyright, I can forbid anybody to reinstall on my, on my, my, uh, my hardware. Another thing was that basically uh, when you, you analyze a little bit further the facts, uh, AVM was the producer of the of the terminals of the hardware. Cybits was uh, the company that was actually offering uh, a, a service and uh, a, a program that could download the firmware, add some piece on it, and basically it was a firmware for um, some terminals. And the the the, the, the addition of Cybits was to 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 add uh, a parental control on the system and then reinstall on the machine. And the problem was that the code of Civit was uh, creating, creating some shortcuts or whatever and the results was, was, was not perfectly perfect and there were some malfunctions. So basically, AVM was saying, well, you are modifying my code, you are installing it on, on the hardware that I produced and then the hardware doesn't work correctly because you modified the code and that creates also damage for me because it's a trademark breach. You, you, you didn't erase a trademark, so I could be liable for the things and the mess that you are doing with, with the code that I, I put on my hardware. But basically, okay, that was the, the second uh, argument. And uh, there was also an antitrust or unfair competition uh, side that I will not talk about. And uh, at the end of the day, the court said that, okay, the, the, the software on Fritzbox, maybe, maybe it's a collective work, but, but anyway, all the GPL parts are under the GPL license and people should be able to modify it and to reinstall it. So that was uh, a victory for uh, the developer, the, the GPL code developers. And then about the malfunctions, well, the, 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 the court said yes, uh, well, there is a, a little problem there because indeed you are still using the trademark and then indeed the software is not functioning correctly so please stop doing that so this version of the software could not be used but anyway if you do it properly there is no problem and all the gpl parts must be uh, open in that way that it could be modified and reinstalled on the hardware very interesting case well it's not that's much about compliance, but anyway, it's also very interesting. Now, about the French cases, as I do not have much time left, it's going to be very, very difficult to present these, these cases. Um, what can I say? Just going to the teaching of the decisions, anyway, I've tried to summarize it the much the, the clear, the, in, a, in a clear way in order to, you know, somebody, somebody reading the slides should normally understand more or less what's happening. Uh, first case, Mandraxoft, it's quite old, from 2003. Uh, basically, it involves some uh, open source uh, licenses, 
but the teaching is somebody used a GPL and released some documents under a GPL without having the copyrights to do so. So the teaching of the, of, of, of the decision is, please, if you want to release some, something under a GPL or an open source license or an open content license, be sure that you have the copyrights on it. Um, second case, how can I summarize it very quickly? Uh, basically, it was somebody, uh, a public, uh, a public administration. No, no, it was a, a public company, so uh, so some kind of a, of a university, wanting to transfer a software that uh, it developed to a, a commercial company, and the commercial company w wanted to make a co commercial version of the software. And once the commercial company re uh, received the software, it realized that there was some GPL code in it. And it said, well, basically, I cannot use it in a proprietary way. I cannot exploit it. So there is a big problem. And the uh, authors of the software said, well, uh, the GPL part was not part of the deal. It was something else. Uh, so the, the, that part was called Jetlight. So it's not part of the transfer. Our software runs with Jetlight, but anyway, it's substitutable, so please recode if you want to make a proprietary version of the software. So they were not happy at all. They sued the copyright owners, and they sued for what? For dolus, so fraudulent concealment. So they, they claimed that uh, they were never aware of that fact. And uh, alternatively, they sued for breach of contract. And uh, at the end of the day, the tribunal said, well, um, the, the acquirer, so the buyer, knew that there was, there, were, there was some open source code there, GPL code there, so there was no dolus. And uh, basically everybody made some mistakes and maybe the, the, the seller um, underestimated the cost of recoding uh, the GPL part. So basically the, 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 the tribunal sent everybody home without any kind of indemnities, nothing, and that's it. Teaching importance and clarity, clarity and transparency as regards the nature of the code. Uh, this is a stupid case. <laughs> no, no, really, it's, no, it's it's really messy, but it's uh, there is no teach teaching. And um, here, what can we say? Well, basically, a public administration procured for some program uh, a contractor. Uh, um, well, uh, was contracted for a job and then uh, had to uh, uh, deliver some software. And then in the administrative procedure, there was a check. At one point, they wanted to check uh, how far went the, the, uh, the works and they wanted to check the, the version uh, of, the, of the software before the, the final uh, um, delivery of the software. And they realized that uh, the contractor erased the, the copyright notices. It replaced the copyright notices with his own copyright notices. And uh, basically, the contractor said, well, it's not the final version, so what's the problem? What's the big deal here? And uh, the administration said, well, uh, we are not happy with that, so we want to uh, terminate the contract. It went before court, and the court confirmed that uh, indeed, there was a breach of contract and uh, erasing the, the notices was not a great idea. Open content licenses. 
first case very interesting but only for open open content and music I will not talk up talk about it uh, second case Adam Curry so uh, in two in two sentences uh, Adam Curry had copyrights on his family photos he published the photos on Flickr under a Creative Commons license non-commercial a tabloid reused these pictures in a nasty uh, uh, article on Adam Curie. He wasn't happy, so he sued, and he uh, reached an injunction order. So basically, the court said, yes, indeed, you have to stop using this non-commercial uh, uh, material. A problem, it was a special, specific procedure, uh, only to, to have an, in, an inju uh, injunctive relief, so a stop, a season and desist procedure. And the court went a little bit further than what was asked, and it said the value of the picture is minimal, given that the pics are already freely available on the internet. This is very dangerous. It's not because something is under a, a, an open license that it's, it's worth nothing. So that was really dangerous, and the, the judge didn't have to go that far, and uh, I was not happy at all to read that in a decision. And that's what's leading me to the last case, a Belgian case, uh, which is Lichot Mapua against Théâtre de Spa. What was the case? A Belgian band, a small band, published and released its, its, its music under a non-commercial license, uh, Creative Commons. A theater reused the music in an advertisement. And the band said, well, you are, you, you are using a license uh, that is supposed to be non-commercial, but you are using it in a commercial way, so there is a problem. And the band sued uh, the theater and uh, on two bases, breach of contract and copyright infringement, and it claimed an indemnity of 10,000 euros. You breached my copyrights, you didn't respect the license, so I want some money in order to indemnify you. Court's findings so the attribution uh, feature was not respected, the non-commercial feature was not respected, the non-derivative uh, uh, non-derivative uh, clause was not respected, nothing was respected, and it granted mil, uh, the 1,000, sorry, 1,500 uh, euros per infringement. So a total of 4,500 euros uh, for the use of a music that was under a non-commercial license it was used something like two, three months uh, in order to advertise uh, the, the place that would, uh, uh, and the, the, the representations that would have been <coughs> presented or organized in t the theater. So that's what, that was not bad at all, actually. And so that's the only slide where I put a, a red box pay, because that's the first time, I think, that we made pay somebody just because it infringed the copyright on a work that was released under an open content license. So uh, conclusions very fast. Uh, I think that the validity of the license is not an issue. Getting an injunctive relief, normally it's no problem. Uh, no uh, active copyleft enforcement as such, so there is no case about what is a derivative work, etc. And as regards indemnification, uh, it's much more tricky, so the judges, some judges are saying, well, it's free and available to everybody, so it's worth nothing. Another case in Belgium says, well, not. Uh, it's, it's under a, an open source license, it's available to everybody, but anyway, if there is a copyright infringement, 
we can grant some uh, damages and, indem and, in and in indemnities in money for the damages done. Here you are. Basically, So I thought that was actually quite a good overview of European case law, and I was surprised that, or not surprised, but it, it's worth noting that there's a lot more official case law in Europe than there is in the United States. Well, and is it the case that European courts share case law across countries at all, or like look to the each other to find out what's going on with given case law? Boy, I don't know what they do. Um, you know, I actually took an EU law class school, but I, it was so long ago, I don't remember. But I assume that they, they must from time to time, the way that in the United States, the different circuits and different jurisdictions look to each other and say, you know, how did this other court... It's not necessarily going to um, make up their mind of how they'll definitely decide, but it's one of the factors that they consider. So, and I think it's interesting but, but, because... But in the, here in the U.S., they never look outside the u.s that's the weird well but thing in the u.s here. well you, you asked me about within the european union and they're right you know well, no, but so I was if, sort of if they're interpreting can, yeah. you know eu law they surely look you know look to each other i don't know but in the u.s we definitely look to each other's states and sometimes we look to other countries too it's not necessarily you know it doesn't happen a lot and there have been criticisms recently of the europe of the u.s legal system that we don't look abroad the way that we should um and that we actually are a lot worse off as a, you know, as a legal system because of it. But just given the way people are in the United States and the way judges are, I would think that it'd be very unlikely that any judge would want to look outside the U.S. I think actually that probably there are cases where, or I would, I, I, I bet there are plenty of times when judges look to decisions in other countries um, just to see how the decision came down, even if they're not actually mentioned. Um, in the you know in the actual decision well one of the similarities when he talked about the remedies that people have sought in european courts they're basically the same and the fact that the remedy of getting a derivative work or requiring a derivative work to be released um, hasn't been sought um, in actual court action now obviously that's sought in settlement negotiations as part of a way if you release the derivative work properly and i think that's actually true in europe as well uh that, that that's asked for as well but the actual court remedies are the typical ones we end up asking for in the united states which are like injunction yeah and, and which is probably remedies. the most powerful tool that we have in our arsenal now yeah i don't know if that's necessarily true i i think the the, the financial damages issue is more important because most people seem not to care uh that they might get an injunction against them uh, because violators just continue to violate Willingly. But the thing I really liked that Philippe said was that he said we should strengthen enforcement. So yeah. that's good to hear other people saying that because well, I believe Well, the thing is that, is that an injunction can really shut down a company's business. So if you can get an injunction, then, you know, whether they were willfully violating or not before, when you have a court order, it becomes a different thing. That's like um, for, for uh, listeners who are fans of LimeWire, um, you know, when the LimeWire site went, went down, that was as a, pro a product of injunction. Well, although, and having, I had a good meeting with Harold Velta recently, which I, by the way, I was, uh, 
I was I felt a lot better that uh, Philippe couldn't necessarily pronounce Harold's name because <laughs> I can often not pronounce names properly in Europe that when they're just in Europe and I should be able to pronounce them. But the fact that two Europeans have trouble pronouncing each other's names is well, they're very different language traditions, so true. you can't really expect. Uh, but it does make me feel better that we're you know as we butcher Philippe Laurent's name that uh, that you know. He may have trouble pronouncing somebody else's name. But anyway, but uh, Harold's told, uh, told me that it's actually relatively straightforward and easy to get uh, an injunction in Germany and quick. It's not so quick in the United States. You have to file right. a case and then you have to file a preliminary injunction motion. Uh, and it can be a long time before you're in front of a judge actually arguing the motion, uh, even though it's an injunction supposed to be for a quick remedy. But it's the courts move slower in the United States than apparently in Germany, at least uh, from what Harold tells yeah. me. Yeah. And I think it probably varies among, you know, with that throughout Europe, but I don't know. Yeah. I was, I, there was one case in there that I didn't know about at all. I didn't know that Mandrake had been involved in a lawsuit. It was over the FDL of all things, well, GPL as well, but I was really surprised. That that there had been a court case that actually discussed the FDL. <laughs> there were a few cases in there that actually I was unaware of, so I thought that was really cool. That was one thing I was really happy about about this talk. I think there may actually be one or two other cases that he didn't include, but you know, he probably was well, he pressed was, for time. He was uh, constrained on time, and, and he raised the same issue that everybody else raised, and I presume next year we'll try and make changes, assuming that we're all going to uh, do this uh, thing again. Um, but uh, the, the other thing I wanted to bring up that he... Uh, he did. He did say that a case that I think is a really important GPL enforcement case that Luik uh, talked about later in the day, which for our listeners' point of view was uh, they already heard it, was the the AFPA case, the EDU four um, dispute regarding the VNC software, which was a contract dispute, and so it was different than most GPL enforcement cases because it was it was over the fact that the contractor didn't do what they were supposed to do, but what they had done was they had basically ripped off VNC and bid on a contract that they could fulfill easily because they were going to infringe this uh, GPL'd work, basically. And the fact that it came down to being just a contract uh, ruling, it, it was still valuable because it was the GPL was the was the issue. And if, if they had ruled that, oh, no, the GPL didn't mean anything, therefore what they did was fine, that would have been really bad. And the fact that they said, well, you didn't comply with the GPL, therefore you committed fraud in your in your contractual obligations. Yeah, but thing. I guess what, I mean, well, I think he, I think Philippe was probably saying a couple of things. One is I think he was saying that the decision was a little confused. Um, and so you're talking about the one where he said this is a stupid. Yeah, well, I was, I was troubled that he said it was a stupid case. Um, yeah. Because I've heard other folks, um, for example, um, I know that FSF Europe thought that it was a completely meaningless thing. They didn't even cover it in their own blogs uh, when FSF France succeeded in that. And I feel like that was a big victory. And FSF uh, itself worked on it. I think uh, this heavily. like contract versus a license issue is really a big deal. Um, and because of these remedies that we we're talking about before, because you you have so much less available to you when you're talking about remedies under contract law as opposed to remedies under copyright law. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we hear this talked about a lot. I think it actually is a, is quite a big deal. Yeah, I think so too. I think that case was, was a big deal. And I, I, I wish that more people in Europe paid attention to it. Um, and I think some of it was part of partly politics that it was a, it was done by FSF and FSF France and, and was not a case that was huh. the normal line. I think there was, I think there was some politics there as far as the amount the community paid attention to it. Um, I don't think Philippe is in the center of that. I think Philippe's primarily approaching this from an academic point of view. Um, and isn't really involved in either of those sides in that case or any other well, case. Well, he did talk about it. <laughs> so, but no, but he's studying it in the sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, so the other thing that I think I thought was interesting was this issue of 
of the same thing that happened in the early courts in the U.S. on the model train case where there were actually judges talking about this idea that that if you release something under a free as in freedom license, um, the work must have no value. And this idea that these pictures didn't have any value because they were already out there. So why should an injunction be granted? That that was really disturbing to me. And I was agreeing with Philippe that, that it was disturbing that the court even yeah, went there. I don't, I, I, you know, I think it's a natural reaction. And I, I you know, I, I think it's a natural reaction that people have when they start to understand what free and open content is. And, you know, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot you know more of it for in the short term and a lot less of it in the long term as people understand the value of freely licensed works. I'm much more pessimistic. I don't think people are learning what this is, and I think the initial reactions continue to be unfriendly to it because people are drilled in their minds in schools that they that in law schools, for example, drill into these uh, students' heads that that's intellectual property. I had I had the intellectual property argument uh, with some, with a number of people who uh, who you would think would be more supportive of, of free software just recently. I think that's starting to change. I mean, you know, when I, I guest lecture that class at, um, at Columbia Law School, um, and that's a that's a, a, a class about the arts, but I talk a little bit about software because free culture law comes from free software law. It's been very interesting, and actually there's been a huge change in the last few years. Like, even just three years ago, if I, I, I asked at the beginning of the class who, you know, who had heard of Creative Commons, who had read the licenses, who had heard of free software, who had heard of um, GNU Linux and who had heard of CopyLeft. And, uh, you know, three years ago, almost no one had heard of anything. And now the most recent class that I taught, almost everybody, actually everybody had heard of Creative Commons um, and some had heard of CopyLeft. And it was fascinating. And I think that that's really starting to change because young people are incorporating a lot of this, a lot of remix culture um, in, into their everyday and are expecting to be sharing more. And it's just part of the culture. And so I think, I don't know, I'm kind of interested to see what happens because I think that as these judges start to have clerks who understand, you know, younger lawyers who understand these issues that we might start to see a shift. Well, we'll see the shift to, I mean, those are the, these sort of, these people, these remix people are, are CC by NC types. They're anti-free software types. Well, don't generalize. Pro-Apple types. Don't generalize. Although it's <laughs> funny that I did go to this um, Brooklyn Law School um, panel. I wasn't speaking on the panel, but I wound up being quoted in one of the, um, the, the articles about it afterwards because I was sort of asking, you know, you, you people are, so I didn't say that, but like, you know, that the, all the panelists were using Apple products and other lockdown, um, services to, to make their points about remix culture, which was just counterintuitive to me. It was crazy. So I, I share well, your It's counterintuitive to people like you and me, to people like them. They, they say, oh, free software, how quaint. Well, they just, oh, you, you cute I little free software. So. They, they've rewritten the history. Free culture came first. Free software is some stupid thing. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think they just don't understand the issues and they don't understand how it really impacts them. Um, and how, how they, they're making choices that make a big difference. And we have to do a better job at articulating it. Okay. Well, we've had this debate before. So I think we'll leave it with that and uh, let our <laughs> listeners uh, uh, enjoy uh, another talk from uh, Fosdem. Cool. Praise and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. 
This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. Over. <laughs>